0: back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be here today. Laurel, how are you feeling?
1: I am feeling pretty good. We just came off of a short week after the long holiday Memorial Day weekend here in the US and heading into another weekend already. Uh, And it is disgustingly hot here in philadelphia so i am dripping sweat and uh ready to rock and roll
0: yeah and we're gonna keep this episode extraordinarily light we won't be talking about anything super heavy nothing really deep we aren't going to be majorly deconstructing the american experiment and the psyche of soldiers and you know this is going to be a really simple really easy really laid-back episode yeah this
1: one's just going to be fluff basically
0: I'm being super cheeky. If you're following us on social media, we are going to be talking about the Francis Ford Coppola movie, Apocalypse Now. Last week we did, um, pardon me, two weeks ago now, we did Bram Stoker's Dracula, and we didn't really feel done with Francis Ford Coppola as a film creator. We loved that episode. The response to it was amazing, and we felt like we wanted to do a sister episode to it, staying with Francis Ford Coppola, And so we debated which one we wanted to do. And as we were discussing the next Coppola movie, it became increasingly clear that we had to go backwards in time from when Bram Stoker's Dracula was made and talk about Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now is a prolific American film. It has its own zeitgeist. It's one of the most quotable movies of all time. But before we actually get into it, I do want to give a content warning. We won't hold back at all in this conversation. We will be talking about things like people dying, blood, war, post-traumatic stress, all of the uncomfortable, terrible subjects you see in this movie we'll be diving into. So if that doesn't make you comfortable and you're not on board with that, no disrespect. Catch us on the next time when we're doing something that won't hopefully trigger you into a downward alcoholic spiral where you end up punching a mirror dancing to the doors.
1: Oh yeah. Just to add to that content warning, just to be totally specific, there is also animal harm discussed uh, in this episode. So definitely uh, skip this one. If that is not something that you are uh, ready for or interested in. Um, Yeah. I have been wanting to do this movie for a long time on the podcast. We have like a spreadsheet that we made when we first started the show of all of the ideas that we had to do in the future. And one of the first things I wrote down was like, hey, we should definitely do Apocalypse Now, especially as it relates to how stories are adapted and how uh, the source material of something can so vastly and deeply change and uh, an inspired uh, work of art can come from something very, very different.
0: Yeah, 100% totally agree All right. We've got the preamble out of the way before we roll up our sleeves and get really deep into it. Laurel, do your thing.
1: Yeah. So we would love to hear from you here at The Midnight Myth. We're over on uh, social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. So please stop by and say howdy if you're in the neighborhood. You can also find us on the web at MidnightMyth.com. And uh, one of the best things that you can do for the podcast is leave us a rating or a review. Uh, If you like what you are listening to, then please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, Spotify, wherever, and drop us five stars, maybe a couple of words about what you like on the show, your favorite episodes. It really helps us find uh, new people and get out there. So thank you to everyone who has left us a rating or a review so far, and let's keep this train going.
0: Yeah, and fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Wheel of Ka just wrapped on our Insomnia episode, and we just started this week reading Eyes of the Dragon. That's the next Stephen King book we'll be doing. So if you want to follow along with Derek and Steve, grab your copy of Eyes of the Dragon and pick it up. We should have an episode, uh, I don't know, hopefully sometime in June.
1: Yeah, awesome.
0: Follow us at Wheel of Ka to figure out where we're at and when that episode will be ready. On with the show, shall we? Absolutely. Absolutely. Briefest of brief recaps, this movie features Captain Willard as he is in Saigon during the Vietnam War in his apartment in a drunken episode dealing with the stress of combat. He gets a mission in which he meets a general and two of the general's aides. They have lunch and they explain that a Colonel Kurtz has gone completely insane, is in Cambodia waging his own war without any type of of military decorum, orders, not following any sort of uh, rules of engagement and is slaughtering and killing people indiscriminately. Specifically, he executed four South Vietnamese, who are the people that they are supposed to be fighting for, under the suspicion that they were North Vietnamese insurgents. And they want Captain Willard to go in a boat through a river, find and infiltrate the Cambodian camp of Kurtz and assassinate him terminate his command, terminate his command with extreme prejudice. Captain Willard accepts this mission and gets stationed on a boat with some other sailors as they travel up this river. A lot of things happen. I'm going to highlight four stops along the way. The first is with a Calvary air captain named Kilgore, played by Robert Duvall, who ends up noticing one of these sailors is a famous surfer. Decides they're going to take a beach because it has the best surf. He ends up conquering this beach to the flight of the Valkyrie by uh, Wagner. Robert Wagner. Yeah, thank you. I was drawing Richard a blank. Wagner, yeah. Richard Wagner. Thank you. I was drawing a blank there. And uh, has the famous line, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. The next stop is at a USO show in which our sailors stop there. The army, the Marines, the Navy have a few playmate models come and dance for them. And that quickly devolves into a riot where the soldiers end up nearly accosting these playmates. And then the last stop is at a bridge that demarcates the boundaries between Vietnam and Cambodia. And this bridge is operating in a battlefield at night without a commanding officer this is also where that same sailor ends up dropping acid and ends up thinking that the battle is so beautiful learning that the bridge is built in the morning by the americans and it's destroyed by the north vietnamese in the evening one last scene before we end up getting to the finale is when the boat decides they're going to board a vietnamese boat under the suspicion that they may be smuggling weapons Turns out they weren't, but that does not stop the young trigger-happy crew of the boat from gunning down everyone in it, assuming that they were lunging for weapons when in fact they were lunging for a puppy. The woman that was lunging for the puppy, the Vietnamese woman, is bleeding out and slowly dying. And the captain of the boat says, we're going to take her on board and take her to a hospital. And this is when Willard pulls out his pistol and fires his only shot in the entire movie, when he shoots the woman and says, we should not have stopped. Things don't go so well for the rest of them as one by one, as they descend deeper in there, they either, the sailors either break or end up as casualties when they finally reach Colonel Kurtz's camp played by the immortal Marilyn Brando. And there we see a bunch of mixture of Cambodian and American soldiers in white. There are nothing but bodies There are nothing but body parts. There are people crucified. And there is this enemic photojournalist played by Dennis Hopper who does not have a name who is explaining that Kurtz is worshipped almost like a god and that he is a great man. And there we find that Willard and Kurtz have these encounters where Kurtz, sitting in the shadows, poetically tries to explain who he is and what he's doing And that he understands that Willard has a right to kill him, but no right to judge him. And he explains that in order to win a war, you must make a friend of horror and mortal and moral terror, pardon me. Willard ends up deciding that he will carry out his job. And as the natives are ritualistically sacrificing a water buffalo, he grabs a machete and he cuts down Kurtz. And his last two words are the horror, the horror. The people that followed Kurtz bow to Willard. Willard ends up grabbing the one sailor, the surfer that he has left, boards the boat and leaves.
1: Excellent recap there, Derek. That is not an easy task to do because, you know, as you, if you listen to this and as you rewatch this film, you realize there's not really a whole lot of plot you know, boat goes upriver, has some interesting and strange and increasingly dreamlike stops along the way, and then culminates in a climactic final scene where the hero, our uh, quote-unquote hero, I'll, I'll I'll call him that, although I think the jury's out on that, overtakes the villain and uh, is triumphant in his task. But is he triumphant in his soul? Uh, it really is a psychological journey. It is a journey that takes us into the deepest depths of what humanity is capable of. It is a journey into fear, into horror, into moral terror, where we have to make friends with the uncomfortable. Uh, So I appreciate you doing the recap there because you had to capture the absurdity of it all uh, and how this film uh, descends from one type of film, I think, into another, into another, into another with every step that it takes.
0: Yeah, I. that's an interesting thing that you said. So I guess we are on to the next question, which is, does this movie hold up? What are some of the major themes? I'm wondering if you could kind of expand on what you mean that the movie kind of changes into another type as it descends. Like, what, what, what exactly do you mean by that comment?
1: Yeah, so when I watch this movie, when it begins... You know, we're kind of set up right away with this really uh, strange and uncomfortable beginning sequence where we see the beaches and the forests being bombed and Willard, uh, you know, superimposed over this, reminiscing on his time in war, going through this sort of alcoholic haze. We're already kind of in his mind in this expressionistic Uh, subjective experience that he's had. But the movie does begin in a fairly straightforward way. The character gets a mission. He gets on this boat with these other characters. We're introduced to everybody. We go to the front and we meet uh, Kilgore and his cavalry. And at this moment, you know, I think that sequence with the surf and them riding to... Wagner, it feels very much like a satire, like a very biting and sarcastic comment on the horrors of war. It feels somewhat straightforward, at least. It's like we're watching a movie about how horrible it was to be in the Vietnam War and how there is this dehumanization that happens when you are a soldier and you are going through some of the worst things you can be going through. And there is something about it that has this deep irony that is not funny, but it is absurd, right? It is just comically absurd, uh, the, the surf aspect of it.
0: If I say this beach is safe to surf, it's safe to surf.
1: Yeah, it feels like satire. And as we move further up the Nung River, as we move closer and closer to Kurtz, as we encounter these really bizarre circumstances of, you know, riding a boat up this dark river through the jungle at night and then seeing the USO show and the Playboy bunnies landing in a helicopter And then you see this bridge and these carnivalesque lights and this carnivalesque music. It gets less and less like the objective experience of war and more and more like we are descending deeper and deeper into a fever dream. Uh, It gets smokier, it gets hazier, it gets harder to see. Everything gets less and less plausible in a lot of ways. And it feels more like we are entering myth. We are entering dream rather than we are objectively experiencing the Vietnam War.
0: Yeah, I do agree with that. That's an interesting way that you phrase it. I mean, the movie is inside Captain Willard's mind almost the whole time. And without fail, just about every shot feels in somewhat from Captain Willard's perspective. And even when we step out of his perspective, we have his voiceover telling us the thoughts. And because we are in this one person's mind, we are seeing a subjective experience of war. But when we have the Calvary and blasting romantic symphonies blowing up on the Vietnamese on the battlefield, there is a sense of a bird's eye view. Literally, we're looking from the chapters down and this sense that we're seeing a more traditional war movie where there's an enemy And then there's the Calvary and they come with triumphant music and they defeat everyone, even though there's this edge of absurdism to it. And then as we get deeper down the river, I think that, that level of objectivity in the filmmaking style slips and it becomes purely in Willard's perspective of what he's going through, what these sailors are going through. And there is this sort of both in the language of the film, as well as in uh, the, the theme of the story, it gets deeper and deeper into Willard's mind. And as he's doing this, it's worth noting that Captain Willard is reading the file of Kurtz. And in many ways, as we're getting deeper into Willard's mind, we are also getting deeper into Colonel Kurtz's mind. And it culminates where these two minds meet. And unlike most war movies, war movies, war stories, war narratives are thousands of years old, and they are always about the hero. Fundamentally, they are hero narratives where it is about the heroic deeds of a or a group of warriors and how they won the war and what they had to do. The Odyssey is about... Uh, how Odysseus, I'm sorry, the Iliad is and the Trojan Wars about how Achilles and Odysseus overcome the Trojans and then come home. Saving Private Ryan is about Tom Hanks and his motley crew overcoming all these obstacles to save Private Ryan and do what? Bring him home.
1: Star Wars is about Luke defeating the evil empire and then coming back from the edge.
0: And in it, there is an implicit acceptance that there is a hero in the war and the idea is having the hero overcome the obstacles and then return home. Most war movies of any type follow this. Even some unconventional ones like The Deer Hunter, they overcome obstacles, some come home, they don't, but they're so fundamentally changed that they can't go back to their regular life. Even things like Full Metal Jacket, where they're still at war, but they're singing a song chanting because they're still here. And there's a sense that though they have gone deep and dark, they're still able to march and soldier on and they're still alive. And that gives them a chance of coming home. What's interesting about this is Willard and unique as a war movie, to my knowledge, Willard says, you know, there's nothing home to go to. The concept of home has been shattered in the psychology of this man. He says this, of um, Kilgore and his troops as they barbecue and drink beer and pray and play football and sing songs and talk about the ocean. The harder they try to make this feel like home, the further it feels. And that is also when he says, there's no home to go back to. This movie doesn't end with our hero triumphant returning home. If he is a hero at all, Willard, it ends with him going down, back onto the boat and turning around, and we don't know where it goes next.
1: And he gets back on the boat. Like we, we see him at least taking the first step toward going home, but there is a part of him that almost doesn't, and there's a part of us that almost expects the movie to cut to black as he is stepping out of the temple, having defeated Kurtz, or almost expects us to turn his head and walk back into the temple and take Kurtz's throne. And I think the final shots of the movie too, which have his face once again superimposed, dissolved over this uh, statue, this sort of uh, native statue that represents the Cambodian camp, really makes us feel like even if he does make it home, a part of him is still in Kurtz's camp. A part of him will always remain with Kurtz in his dying breaths. And the cinematic language starts to break down as the movie goes on too. We don't have a lot of dialogue in this movie to begin with, but the dialogue scenes become fewer and far between. It becomes more sparse. The language becomes more broken. We have Dennis Hopper's character who can barely complete a sentence. He's so manic. He is constantly just trying to get his words to keep up with his thoughts. We have the poetic diatribes of Kurtz, which are not dialogues by any means, they're monologues and speeches. And then we have uh, Willard reflecting on these and listening to Kurtz read from T.S. Eliot or reading from Kurtz's own manuscript. So we more increasingly than dialogue, which is typically the language we expect in cinema, get these uh, stark and stunning, like visually stunning uh, spectacles that have been continuing throughout this movie, but they become more and more symbolic. And we have to read more and more from the visuals and less and less from the actual conversations between the characters. And so that's why I think that this descends less from the objective war movie into myth and accesses that kind of universal war uh, motif without relying on what you were just describing in Saying that this is about heroes. It is a reflection on the fact that war, more often than not, leaves our heroes feeling like villains or leaves the people uh, who have been led into this war uh, feeling uh, traumatized.
0: In particular, in American history, in the War of Vietnam, in particular, that specific war. Mm-hmm. And the story that we tell about a war is incredibly important in framing yourself as doing, something some, as doing something moral, something heroic by the act of it. You don't hear stories and couldn't imagine Agamemnon and Odysseus losing sleep after this sack of Troy. The idea is that the sack of Troy was in and of itself a good because the war was good and just and they were fought. And though you definitely do, we do hear stories of shell shock in World War II, we don't have the predominant narrative of World War II destroyed a generation as they returned home from fighting. Quite the opposite. We Americans call them the greatest American generation. We tell a story by which that their sacrifice, as painful and traumatic as it was, was made them the greatest Americans of all Americans.
1: And made the world safer and made the world better because it defeated this great evil.
0: Furthermore, if you look at another American war, the American Civil War, and you look at the losing side, the South, they created a narrative of lost cause, which is where we get traditions like Memorial Day from, saying that, hey, We actually, though we lost the physical battle, we've won the moral war. We'll win the historical war. We won't let the North crush our way of life and crush our Southern spirit. We'll tell a narrative that allows us to cope with the trauma and pain. Vietnam, the history of Vietnam is unique in that the narratives that are told of it are more akin to platoon, full metal jacket, apocalypse now than they are of movies like Patton, or Saving Private Ryan, or Band of Brothers on HBO that is about the fundamental heroism of the soldiers or the generals and that you were on the right side of history by fighting this war. Quite the contrary, Vietnam was a war that was doubted by everyone, which we will get into that because I think it's important to understand how this happened in America How the Vietnam War happened and how the anti-war movement and how the anti-war movement dialogued with art and with artists in order to craft and shape the the war America lost.
1: So before we dive really deeply into that, because I think there I think you're absolutely right in that we need to spend some significant time with the Vietnam War and how we ended up telling the stories that we do tell about that war. Uh, I think it's important to answer your question about whether this movie holds up uh, because we always do. And for me, you know, that's a yes. This, there's a big reason why this is considered one of the greatest movies of all time. It's on AFI's top 100. It is considered by many the greatest war movie of all time. Uh, That is because it is a visually stunning, uh, the cinematography by Vittorio Storaro is uh, some of the most incredible and inspired work I have ever seen his use of light and color and these incredible tracking shots of this motion camera that is always moving alongside the boat or always has a sense of motion to it makes us feel more and more unsteady. The use of shadow on Kurtz's face reminds us of the darkness within, makes us feel like he is almost too much to behold at once and creates this mythic feel around him as a man. And those are just a couple of examples of the incredible work being done uh, cinematographically in this film. It is a masterpiece of editing. As we know, there were like hundreds of hours of film shot because the production of this movie is freaking crazy Uh, and if you've never seen the documentary Hearts of Darkness which was made while they were making this film I highly recommend it for some reason I saw it before I actually saw Apocalypse Now but it is essentially chronicles the making of the movie and how it went incredibly beyond schedule incredibly over budget there were so many egos so many ambitions clashing as they were you know set up in the Philippines making this movie Francis Ford Coppola threatened to kill himself multiple times during the production. And poor Martin Sheen was in this like alcoholic downward spiral, had a near fatal heart attack to the point where it was arranged to deliver last rites to him. They thought he was going to die on the set. And those are just a couple of the incredibly wild things that happened while this movie was being made. So I highly recommend watching Hearts of Darkness because you can see the egos making this film start to break down alongside the characters. It's almost as though they are experiencing Apocalypse Now, experiencing uh, the the truth of the characters uh, in real life as they're making it. So highly recommend that. I think this film is incredible on its own, but understanding what went into the production of it, I think almost elevates it for me. Uh, It is an almost even more epic experience because you know that they were really in this jungle and they were really all kind of losing their minds.
0: And you can really tell when you watch the movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Yes, you can really tell. I, I also agree this movie holds up. It's controversial. Not everybody loves this movie. It is not the most entertaining of movies. You know, you don't watch a movie like Apocalypse Now when you want to have some popcorn on a Friday night and you want to relax and veg out and watch a fun movie. You don't pick Apocalypse Now for that. But it is an important piece of artwork because of the way it is deconstructing the Vietnam War, the Vietnam War experience, and most importantly, it's tying the narrative of how American, and in particular, the American anti-war movement and the American artistic movement of the sixties and the seventies was reacting to this monumental historical event called the Vietnam war. And I think it, it documents that in a way that is completely fictitious while being authentic. And that's the paradox of make believe you can do something that feels so authentic and real while being fictitious. It's worth noting that it's an adaptation of the heart of darkness We will talk about that later. And I think there is a question that I'd like to pose. If you're going to adapt Heart of Darkness and you're going to do this in the mid to late 70s and you are a celebrated filmmaker who had just got off making Godfather and Godfather 2, why do you pick Apocalypse Now? Why do you set it in Vietnam? How does this happen? And I think we have to understand a little bit of the history here Of the Vietnam War, how America got involved into it, and more importantly, how a counterculture developed around it. I want to caveat that this is not my historical wheelhouse. This is something that I did most of the research piecing together for this episode. It's not something that I'm super well versed in. So if you out there listening are a Vietnam historical war buff and want to correct the record or add some nuance that I missed, I welcome it because. This isn't my Rome. Like everyone knows, Derek, talk about ancient Rome like crazy. And I can go on and on and on about the ancient world. Contemporary modern history, not my wheelhouse. But I'm going to try to piece it together as best and as succinctly as I can from the minimal research. Forgive me any errors, mispronunciations. It turns out, and I did not know this, Around the turn between the 1st and 2nd century, the Common Era, so between 100 and 200 AD, the end 100, early 200 AD, the Chinese empire conquered the area we now call Vietnam. And this was its own region that spoke its own dialect, Vietnamese. The Vietnamese had been under foreign rule from then on. Some of the great Vietnamese folk heroes are people that think of like how William Wallace is to the Scottish, who fought and fought hard, and tried to rebel against the Chinese, but ultimately failed to secure that rebellion. So there is a streak of Vietnamese culture that is uh, anti-imperialism, anti-being conquered, that has a strong sense of Vietnamese nationalism that has been defined against the foreign power that seeks to occupy it. This, This culture has been brewing for thousands of years by this point. You get to modern colonialism and the French conquer Vietnam and turn it into a colony. And in the Vietnamese colony, there was a tremendous suffering, there was tremendous exploitation, lots of resources being extracted, but the fundamental colony was not revenue producing for the French empire, but it was revenue producing for the companies. So the French are dumping lots of money in so private capital can be taken out and they're not very comfortable with this, Meanwhile, there is a French peasant class, Vietnamese French peasant class being heavily exploited, and then a Vietnamese elite class being educated and trained to help the French rule the administration of the empire. Now World War II happens and the Japanese come. The French really can't maintain their empire at all because they're being conquered by the Germans. So they're withdrawing their military from Vietnam. The Japanese come in and they're like, finally, we got these colonizers out of here. They hail the Japanese as liberators, only to find out that the Japanese empire would be just as, if not more ruthless than the French. So now there is this young Vietnamese man who goes to France at the end of World War II and during World War II to get educated, to fight for Vietnamese rights, Etc. and he's trying to work within the French colonial administration. World War II ends, the French come right back, and they colonize yet again, under the assumption that it would take them eight weeks to subdue Vietnam. This young man who is in Paris, he goes back to Vietnam, and he changes his name to Ho Chi Minh, very important name here, and he is known affectionately among the Vietnamese supporters as Uncle Ho. So Uncle Ho is now back in Vietnam and organizing a resistance to the French. It is said, what people say of him was that he was a Vietnamese nationalist first and foremost, and a communist second. He ends up adopting communism as many nations did post-colonialism at the collapse of these colonial empires. It's because they linked their empires to capitalism. So remember how I said the French money comes in, French capital comes out to the private companies. They were wary of capitalism because capitalism was their direct oppressor, so they adopt communism. But Ho Chi Minh cares more about Vietnam than he does about Marx. It's important to note that as well. Yeah. But he ends up becoming a communist. The French are having a really tough time seducing the Vietnamese. Why is that? Because as Ho Chi Minh is sparking French nationalism that has been brewing under the surface for near 2,000 years, they are not so easy to give up their believed ability to have their own country. One, Ho Chi Minh adopts communism. What happens next? China and Russia get involved and they start giving Ho Chi Minh a lot of weapons. This is in the 50s, Eisenhower's president. Eisenhower notices this. Eisenhower starts giving lots of money to the French to fund their weapons. So now you have Ho Chi Minh, nationalist communist, fighting French capitalist as a proxy war between Russia and between the United States happening. The French end up getting their butts whooped. They sue for peace. This is where the partition between North Vietnam and South Vietnam occurs. The French appoint a president to rule South Vietnam for two years. Ho Chi Minh will rule North Vietnam for two years, and then there'll be a free election, and the Vietnamese will be one country, and that one country can determine for themselves what they want to be, communist, capitalist, democratic, monarchy, whatever you want. You got two years and then it's going to happen. The problem is the South Vietnamese president had no interest in allowing an election to happen and proved himself to be a brutal dictator. The French had sunk millions of francs at this point, and they are done. We signed our peace treaty. We walked out. The Americans, however, are operating under the domino theory. The domino theory, God, this stuff is so complicated, guys. I know, this is nuts. I'm really sorry. The domino theory is the belief that if you allow one country to be communist, it will slowly spread to all the other countries. There is some precedent for this as the formation of the Eastern Bloc of Europe into the USSR, forming the empire of the USSR, happened like a domino one nation adopted communism. They signed a treaty. They joined the USSR. The next one did and boom, 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 boom. And suddenly now you have, you know, central half of central and all of Eastern Europe under the sway of the USSR. So the idea is don't let a single country fall to communism, do whatever it takes to not let it fall to communism. Otherwise the whole world will become communist. So under the guise of the domino theory, Eisenhower, pardon me, starts fueling the resistance and propping up this dictator in South Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh, realizing Ho Chi Minh, pardon me, realizing that there will not be an election, he starts to attack in South Vietnam, and a new political party in South Vietnam called the Viet Cong rise, and they start fighting internally with the South Vietnamese. This period of history gets even more bonkers. There's an attempted coup on the president of South Vietnam, who is a dictator orchestrated by the State Department. They tried to oust him because he was oppressing the Buddhists. You know, has everyone seen Rage Against the Machine's first album, that picture of a Buddhist who lit himself on fire? That was in protest to the South Vietnamese president for his oppression of the Buddhists. Because he was Catholic, so obviously he has to kill the Buddhists. So one lights himself on fire. This is how crazy this stuff gets. Long story short, long story long, you now have Kennedy as president. Kennedy is the president during the coup attempt. Kennedy wants to make sure that Vietnam does not become communist, but he is very, very hesitant um, about committing any actual troops to it. Kennedy gets assassinated. Johnson is president. 1964, two U.S. boats off of the coast of North Vietnam get torpedoed, and the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution passes Congress, which gives President Johnson wide-ranging authority to wage whatever military conflict he was. It is not a declaration of war, and he starts Operation Rolling Thunder. March of 1965, Johnson made a decision with Almost unanimous support from America to send troops to, ground troops to Vietnam and start an invasion of Vietnam to stop North Vietnamese from taking over the South Vietnamese. By June of 65, 82,000 troops, American troops, land troops are stationed in there. And uh, by the end of 1965, 175,000 troops were there. So this was a huge troop investment. And America supported it. So how did that tipping point change? The tipping point changed because the rate of death of the American troops was incredibly high. This is where we have to peel back and ask ourselves something because we contemporary Americans have a strong military tradition. We're like, we have an unlimited amount of troops at all times, right? We don't need to just conjure up more troops. How would you even do that? America from the foundation of post-revolutionary war had a military tradition of beefing up the army in times of conflict and demilitarizing in times of peace. The founding fathers highly distrusted standing regular armies. Why? Because the British used standard regular armies to terrorize their own citizens, as did Julius Caesar and every tyrant in between. So they thought standing regular armies are a threat to liberty. Only form an army when you need it, and when you don't need it, you disband it. Well, how do you do that? You do that two ways. Way number one, every state has to have its own militia. How do you do that? You have to have the Second Amendment. People have to have the right to have arms because a militia is a citizen army. Option two, the other two, these work in tandem. You have a draft. When a war breaks out, you draft soldiers. The more fancy word for it is called conscription. You conscript soldiers into service. So if you are a man between 18 and 26, you must be draft eligible. If your name gets pulled for the draft, you have to fight. So America is in a surprise attack. You have the militia as your first line of defense while you then you draft an army and you train it and you fight. Problem is this way of war never really worked well. It was always kind of backwards. The militia never really did their job well. And in particular, in Cold War America, the need for a regular army was apparent but now we're in Vietnam and now we're in a bloody conflict and now we're losing troops faster than we can replace them. So you have a draft. This is the start as far as I can tell of the anti-war movement. And it started because local draft boards had almost unilateral authority to decide who they would and would not draft with little to no federal oversight. What does that mean in America folks? It means poor people, in particular, poor black people, are being drafted. So you're married ah, and have a kid on the way, we won't draft you. Going to college, ah, we won't draft you. Don't have a lot of prospects, unmarried, boom, you're going. And if you are poor, you're drafting. So the first protest started at college campuses protesting the draft. There was also a growing theory among college-educated liberals of the time, that the domino theory, not that it was wrong, not that it was incorrect, but it was a lie, that it was a mask for American imperial ambitions, that the war itself was being fought on faulty grounds, that it wasn't about containing communism, it was about conquering people in, the, in Asia, in what is the area known as Indochina, on the peninsula by which Vietnam is there. So these two things are working in Tamden. Add in the civil rights movement, where you have people fighting for the civil rights of black and African Americans. Them saying, uh, why are our boys disproportionately being out there being blown up rather than the white boys? You add that with the start of the gay movement and the gay liberation movement and second wave feminism. You have this brew of individuals from creating a cross circuit of a huge anti-war effort. One last point about the anti-war effort and what it happened, every home in America now had a TV. And that is super important. There is now the ability to take with a TV, a remote TV camera to a war zone, and later that day, send it back to America so people could see the horrors of war in a way that they had never seen it before. Anti-draft sentiment, a sense that the domino theory is unfair, a combination of cross-sectional liberal values, and then you mix in horrible television images on the news every single night, and boom, you have an anti-war movement of the likes America has never seen before and has never seen since. This anti-war movement expresses itself in a whole host of ways, but the way that I think we remember it the most now is through protests, marching in the street, and music. And the music that came out of this protest movement and the birth of the 60s and 70s rock and roll, which has solidified itself as a huge part of left culture, support the protests and support the music that support the left-wing causes. A few other things to note here before I wrap this all up here, because I know th- I'm monologuing like crazy and everybody wants to hear Laurel's voice. (laughs) Nobody listens to me here. Oh, come on. Uh, Nixon ends up getting in office. Um, One of the main reasons Nixon gets into office is because of the anti-war movement and because of the mismanagement from the Democrats, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson deciding he won't run for a second term ends up creating the perfect... You know, soup for a new political party, a new political leader, pardon me, in Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon is largely responsible for the reorganization of conservative America into the Republican Party and liberal America into the Democratic Party. The reason why the Democrats fight racism and are for climate change and the Republicans are anti-immigration and law and order is because of the time, this time in the emergence of Richard Nixon as a figure. Richard Nixon wants peace with honor. He recognizes that this war is not going to be won conventionally. So what he decides to do is change the strategy. So it's a start bringing troops home, start building up the South of Vietnamese, but he does bomb Cambodia. And this sparks another wave of protest, including kent college where four ohio students get killed in an anti-war protest you could do a whole podcast on any one of these subjects ultimately the war ends up america ends up leaving the war and ends up having all troops withdrawn by 1973 the country of vietnam is pretty much destroyed the american economy is in shambles due to inflation from overspending for this war And not too long thereafter, South Vietnamese gets conquered by the North Vietnamese. All of this is to say, all of this brief, it sounds long, but trust me, it's brief history of this very complicated event is to say that it created a narrative of the war that it was wrong. If you were pro-war, you hated it because we lost. And we didn't actually secure what we wanted to do, which was defeat the communists in North Vietnam. If you were anti-war, you hated it because you thought it was wrong to begin with. You thought that the draft was wrong. So there was no narrative by which we could say America had spun this as a victory. There's no narrative to say that we were just in doing it. The only narratives that exist are cynicism, disbelief, and deflated patriotism. It is because of this that the film tradition that Coppola is coming into and playing with that makes it ideal for a story that's cynical at its core about human nature and about the nation state. If you're going to tell a story that says colonialism is full of crap, Humans are just savage by nature. And as soon as you peel any veneer of civilization away, they're going to all just become savage monsters. And you must make a friend of moral terror if we want to do anything in this world. Vietnam's the only place in the 70s that a filmmaker could do this adaptation.
1: Whew, wow. I mean, drop the mic, but they're on stands. Thank you so much for that, Derek.
0: You're very welcome. And sorry for the long monologue, this history is very complicated it's not easy to understand and, you know the interesting thing too when you're looking at the history of the vietnam war you also have to ask yourself a fundamental question who's telling that history because it's still so politically charged to date a lot of people participating in creating history were alive at that time so what are their motivations you know there's a big difference between going to someone who worked for the Johnson or Nixon administration and Noam Chomsky, and asking them to reflect on the lessons learned of that era, you're going to get hugely different uh, opinions. And these are two primary sources. So how do you reconcile the politically charged nature of that time and the history of it? And there's so much evidence. It's almost overwhelming. There's so many photos and letters and there's so much news coverage How do you make sense of this era is a really huge challenge.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when you were talking about the developments in technology that led to the very unique media coverage of the war and how that ended up changing a lot of the public opinion about the war, you think about that in comparison with the way that communications worked with previous war efforts, especially World War II, when you could go to the movie theater and you could see these films that were made about our brave boys who were out there fighting this great evil and these were curated and these were created in order to inspire the American people to participate in the war effort, and these were incredibly successful media ventures, well, that's not what's happening with Vietnam. We are getting direct and somewhat objective coverage of what is happening, and a lot of those things that are happening are atrocities. There are photographs of little children being lit on fire with napalm and running across bridges as this horrible war crime is happening. And as people are seeing this, it becomes less and less possible to support or to believe that you are on the right side of history in this war. Uh, And I think something that you were saying as we were discussing this before we recorded was that this was the first time in American history that the war effort was lost at home before it was lost on the ground in Vietnam. And I think that is a really uh, interesting way to put it, that because Americans lost faith in the war effort, this influenced what happened across the globe. And then when our troops came home, it led into the way that they were treated and the way that their trauma was handled. And that is something that I think is a pretty big stain in American history, because of course, I don't think that we had a moral right to be in that war. But I do think that we have a moral obligation to care for The veterans who dealt with that, they didn't ask to be deployed for the most part. They were drafted, they were conscripted, and they were forced to participate in something that felt immoral and was immoral. So just wanna thank you for that context and I think it provides a really interesting backdrop to Apocalypse Now. Uh, I was actually taking notes while you were talking because some of the things that you said, I think really fed into that question about why Vietnam as the setting for an adaptation of Heart of Darkness, uh, some of the things that you said really helped me clarify that in my own mind. And so if you're okay with it, I'd love to talk a little bit about Heart of Darkness and try to answer that question with a few more dimensions because I think you already provided a pretty satisfying answer.
0: Yeah, yeah, one last point really quickly that you you mentioned that I just want to expound upon. Laurel is not wrong that... The Vietnam War is one of the only times known to me in American history where veterans, when they returned, were treated horribly. And they were treated horribly for the same reason I noted before. If you were pro-war, you hated the vets because they fought a war and lost. If you were anti-war, you hated the vets because you didn't believe they should be there. And that lack of home is very real to the Vietnam vets. That lack of home that Captain Willard spoke of is very true. And um, I am a big believer in helping to support the veterans because these soldiers have no choice in where they go and when they go. And no more um, war is that more apparent than in Vietnam when you're dealing with a largely constricted army of poor people with little options and no way out of the draft. That being said, support your veterans. I firmly believe in that cause.
1: Yeah, extremely well said. Um, So to move a little bit into Heart of Darkness and to answer that question a little bit further, uh, we have to talk a little bit about Joseph Conrad's novel, Heart of Darkness, written and published in 1899. It follows Charles Marlowe, a captain in the employ of an ivory trading company, simply known as The Company, on a voyage up the Congo River in search of a successful ivory trader named Kurtz, who has set up a camp uh, in the Congo River Basin. Upon arriving at Kurtz's camp, he learns that the natives there worship Kurtz like a god, though to Marlowe, it appears that Kurtz has gone insane. Marlowe takes Kurtz onto his boat to return to London with him, but Kurtz is very ill and dies on the trip after uttering his final words, the horror, the horror. And Marlowe then visits Kurtz's grieving fiancé and lies to her, telling her that Kurtz's final words were in fact her name. Uh, So very similar in the sparse plot elements to Apocalypse Now, you can see the inspiration there. But the question that you asked was, why adapt this for the Vietnam War? On the surface, they are very different contexts. Uh, Apocalypse Now is a war movie, and Heart of Darkness has nothing to do with war. But what it does have to do with is colonialism, imperialism, and capitalism. And one of the things that you were talking about was how easy it was to conflate uh, colonialism with capitalism at the breakdown of a lot of these nation states as the world order was kind of being reorganized. And as a lot of these nation states were adopting communism, it was a reaction to capitalism Uh, because they believed that that was colonialism. And in many ways, capitalism is the mechanism by which colonialism and imperialism can succeed. So that's what's happening in Heart of Darkness is the ivory trade is sending uh, Europeans and British colonizers, particularly, into the Congo River Basin and leading to these horrible conditions to exploitation and to atrocities. So I just wanted to point that out as one of the reasons why that relationship between Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now works.
0: I and just out of curiosity, because I haven't read Heart of Darkness, Yeah is is the book set in a time in which Africa was colonized by, like, is are they in the British colony of the Congo? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And most people read this as a pretty harsh critique of British colonialism, although there has been some very astute modern commentary around whether or not Conrad is really critiquing colonialism or if he is, uh, you know, showing Africans in a very poor light. And you could look at the criticism by Chinua Achebe for a really interesting perspective on that. Uh, But I do choose to read this in the sense that it is a critique of capitalism, of colonialism, as these hypocritical uh, mechanisms for conquering the world. So another thing that you said as you were talking about Vietnam and you were talking about the American anti-war movement was this relationship to the domino theory and how uh, that became, as you said, a mask for American imperial ambitions. I think that's also really important to Heart of Darkness.
0: To be fair, I wasn't saying that the anti-war Protesters were saying that.
1: That's, yeah, absolutely. So, thank you for, uh, you know, just clarifying that. I think that's also really important to Heart of Darkness because what is really central to that story and also central to Apocalypse Now is the contrast and the somewhat lack of contrast between the supposed civilization of Europe. The supposed civilization of the American army, uh, whichever story you're looking at, the uh the the civilized world is not that different from the supposedly uncivilized world, right? So even though in uh in Europe, in London, or in the American army, we are in uniform, we maybe have these high society manners, we think that we are above and beyond the uh, the quote-unquote primitive world, and yet we are using those manners, we are using that mask to provide this veneer for our actual ambitions, which are deeply inhumane. So in Heart of Darkness and also in Apocalypse Now, we see Marlowe and then we see Willard reflecting on the fact that the civilized world is really just a bunch of hypocrites who, if they went up the river into the jungle, it would be very quickly revealed that they have that same darkness and evil that we see in Kurtz lying underneath them. You know, in Apocalypse Now, we see Willard charged to take out an American military officer by American military officers That's an insane thing that they're asking him to do. And why is it? Because he's charged with murder. But Willard reflects that everyone in this war is doing inhumane things. And we see inhumane actions happening every step of the way. We see Willard, you know, we see him killing an innocent woman who was just trying to protect a puppy. How innocent does that get? Uh, And reflecting on how absurd it is that he is being charged with the task of taking out this one officer, where do you actually draw the line of the rules of engagement and where do you actually say immoral or amoral actions exist when everything is breaking down?
0: And Vietnam in its history is an example of how difficult it is to apply a civilized mindset to the warfare. What I mean by that, because you know, war is uncivilized by its very definition.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we use the word civilized in this conversation at all, it has to be qualified.
0: But in fact, so there's a, the bridge sequence that you see at the movie where the bridge is built during the day and it's destroyed during the night. Also, a general can say that that bridge is intact. And that is not too fictitious about some of the battle strategies that did exist in the Vietnam War. So a few things to point out. One, the Vietnam War was fought relatively asymmetrically, meaning that there were people in South Vietnam who were Viet Cong fighting for the communism of South Vietnam, and then there were the North Vietnamese that they were trying to conquer and subdue. So asymmetrical symmetrical warfare means that you have an army on one side, an army on another side. Maybe you have a navy on one side, a navy on the other side. Maybe it's an air force, but there is a symmetry to it. There is a line by which we hold this territory, they hold this territory. And the idea is to push that territory back away from the other enemy until you either obliterate their army or you've conquered all of their territory, whichever happens first. Vietnam had times where let's say the Marines had to take a hill. They would go and they would take a hill. They would notify the hill, all civilians there, get out. We're taking this hill, we're dropping napalm, and then we're sending in the troops. So they do that. Then they go back to base. And then the Viet Cong would come back right then. And then tomorrow, they'd have to go and take that hill one more time. It was also a guerrilla war. And that meant that the Viet Cong were using... Women and children as weapons. And how do you make a distinction when, as shown in this movie, when there is a medical helicopter that has a wounded soldier and a woman runs up and throws a grenade in it, how do you differentiate the combatant from the non-combatant in an asymmetrical guerrilla war? It's really hard. That's why it leads to, uh, we're going to just have to kill everybody. Because we can't differentiate. Because the soldiers, they don't have uniforms on. They aren't broadcasting in a symmetrical way. Here's our army, come and fight us. It's not Caesar versus Pompey in Greece. You know, it's not uh, Leonidas versus the Persians. It isn't 300. It's really, really difficult to do, and it's difficult to fight. And the Colonel Kurtz is pointing out the absurdity and the stupidity of trying to win a asymmetrical guerrilla war with symmetrical conventional tactics he talks about the story of them chopping off the girls arms he his job was to give polio vaccine to girls and then the viet cong were chopping off their arms because they were distrustful of whatever was happening and he cried but then it pierced his head like a diamond the will it takes to do that and that if he could have soldiers who could fight with that level of will. He'd be able to actually win this war. Let's juxtapose that to Kilgore, who's a formidable warrior. He's a formidable commander. His troops love him, but he is fighting the battle in the hopes to get home. What does he do? He recreates home. He wants people to surf. He doesn't want to be in Vietnam. Willard says, Charlie doesn't get much R&R, which stands for rest and relaxation. He had only two ways home, death or victory. And the idea that you're not going to win this war by fighting it conventionally, the only way, if you're telling me as a colonel, the only way that I, my job is to win this war, the only way is to stoop lower than any of us will want to go to make a friend of horror, to make a friend of moral terror, to move beyond conventional thinking and to become the monster. That's the only way that you can actually stop the will to fight of the Vietnamese. And that itself, the fact that America is unable to do it in reality mimics the inability to do it in the movie. And it's worth noting that America has fundamentally changed its way of war post-Vietnam in that we're not, we haven't made the PR nightmare mistake of having a draft. America has decided to keep a large, regular army at all times. And we have been to war since Vietnam. We've had zero drafts. I don't think we'll ever go back to a draft. And how did America do it? It created a huge propagandistic machine that said, join the military. The military is the highest honor that you can have. They started having the national anthem sung at football games and hockey games and basketball games. They started having jets fly by. They allowed Michael Bay access to aircraft carriers and Black Hawk helicopters and Transformer movies. And they put huge amount of money into commercials and into recruiting so that America could have a fighting force large enough so that if a Vietnam were to happen again, we wouldn't need a draft. And it has in Afghanistan. And so it has. We have had a very similar style of war where we are fighting an enemy that has been under the thumb of others, who knows the terrain, who will not give up easily, who will fight asymmetrically, who will use guerrilla warfare, but we don't see the anti-war movement And in large part, that is because America has given up on the draft.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's heavy stuff because we also still are not taking care of our veterans and they are, you know, I think less visible than they were in Vietnam. So, uh, yeah, this is all really interesting context and how it plays into Apocalypse Now is heavy. You know, when you think about uh, Kurtz as this seemingly impossible villain, like someone that you you don't think you could become, but what the movie is kind of telling you is that as you go up the river, you are almost destined to become more of a Kurtz. In Willard, who becomes more and more psychologically connected to him, becomes more and more numb to the killing of innocents, uh, and becomes more and more ready to take the throne, even though we see him walk away in the end, Uh, we all see that we can touch that darkness, that we can reckon with that really scary, monstrous horror that is within all of us. I think this is all really interesting in how it historically places Apocalypse Now, and I think another dimension that I would love to add to it is the mythological, if you would permit me. Sure. So the way that I want to do this is to talk about a few more of the literary references within Apocalypse Now, because while it is based on Heart of Darkness, there are a couple of other very significant literary references that happen within, uh, one of which is The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot, which Kurtz is reading uh, in his temple as the uh, the photographer and Willard are listening on. So this is a poem written by T.S. Eliot in 1925, and the poem itself is prefaced with two epigraphs, the first of which is Mr. Kurtz, He Dead, the second of which is a penny for the old guy. So the first epigraph is a direct quote from Heart of Darkness. So T.S. Eliot is very inspired by Joseph Conrad. And the second epigraph refers to Guy Fox and the powder plot. And in Apocalypse Now, as Kurtz is reading from the opening lines of The Hollow Men, the photojournalist paraphrases the famous final stanza to Willard, which is, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. The whole poem is typically read as a spiritual journey of the dead through the kingdoms of death, using imagery that's reminiscent of the Christian hell or Dante's Inferno, and also the Greek Hades, which of course requires a boat journey up the river Styx. So these are all images that are deeply tied to uh, Apocalypse Now and to Heart of Darkness. But if you read the poem, and you can find it anywhere online, it is open source, and it is not long, so I definitely recommend reading it. It's one of the great uh, works of poetry of the 20th century. The language becomes more and more increasingly broken and dreamlike as it goes, which structurally, I think, uh, Apocalypse Now mirrors. So Eliot is including all of these broken sentences and these unfinished phrases and these messed up quotes from nursery rhymes and from the Lord's Prayer as it is becoming more and more surreal. So I think that's important to think about how T.S. Eliot's poem, both in content and in structure, provides a bit of a framework for Apocalypse Now becoming more and more subjective, becoming more and more dreamlike. The other big literary reference that I want to call out is The Golden Bough by James Fraser, which was written in 1890, uh, about nine years before Heart of Darkness. Very, very important and seminal text by a cultural anthropologist and very midnight myth. I think I mentioned it during our Harry Potter series, but it was a big influence for Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces. It really reckons in an anthropological context with universal themes of life, death, and rebirth with the cycles of the earth and the harvest and the death of the land and the kind of ritual sacrifice that uh, societies engage in, at least in Fraser's perspective, uh, of the sacrifice and the killing of their sacred god king and his resurrection with the resurrection of the earth. So works with these universal motifs and is incredibly influential. So not just Campbell, but Robert Graves, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung are all influenced by this. And of course, T.S. Eliot is extremely influenced by this when he writes his seminal poem, The Wasteland, which is about the Arthurian legend and the Fisher King narrative. All of this culminates in this incredible milieu of literary references of the Arthurian legend, of ancient societies, of the marriage to the land, of the wounded king, of the death of the king, of the acolyte or the disciple coming to kill and overtake the king and become the renewal of the land, which we see when Marlow, or sorry, when Willard (laughs) kills Kurtz and it's intercut with the killing of a sacred water buffalo, it is done in a ritual context, which creates this uh, deification of Willard into what could easily become the next god king of this kind of mythic civilization. So we absolutely have uh, this incredible soup of literature, this soup of myth uh, that, that Willard walks away from. At least he physically walks away from it. And I said this in the beginning, but the final things that we see are his face dissolved over the statues that represent the religious rites of Kurtz's camp of Cambodia. So did he leave? Did he spiritually stay there? Uh, has he killed the god? Has he killed the king of this land and taken his place? When he returns home, if he returns home, will he be the same? Probably not. Uh, so wanted to call out those references there. I think they're super important in understanding the kind of mythic context and the subjective context of the story. And I think marrying that to the historical context of Vietnam, we have something so incredibly unique in Apocalypse Now.
0: Yeah, and there's so much ritualistic and mythological and religious imagery in this movie. It We could do a whole thing just on that imagery. I'm thinking of when Willard is coming up out of the water. He's got camouflage yeah. on his face. And that shot, he feels like a primordial god coming out of the the soup, the waters of existence ready to take his job, his job of slaying the Titan, you know, and taking his place upon Olympus or in Asgard yeah, or wherever, yeah. you know, like there is this feeling and it's not triumphant. It's dirty and it's gross. And it's, and it's about horror.
1: The horror, the horror of it all.
0: Well, this has been heavy, deep. Hopefully we haven't depressed you all and until next time, be kind.
1: Not with a bang, but a whimper.